Hello, and welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I am Aaron. And I'm Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today. And for those of you new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. Um, So with that in mind, Damien, what are you bringing to the table today? Uh, Aaron, I'm thrilled to be bringing the 1619 Project to the table today. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been out for a minute and folks may be familiar with it. But essentially, the 1619 Project came out back in 2019 as a publication in the New York Times, Mm -hmm. and it's composed of various essays and poems and stories all by Black writers. And what the project sets out to do is reframe American history and what we were all taught about it by considering what it would mean to set 1619 as America's birth year as opposed to 1776. Um, They say this in the description, and I completely agree with it. Uh, But what's really powerful about the 1619 Project is that it pushes us to shift our understanding of history and Mm -hmm. place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black people at the center of this country's history and story, um, which is obviously very different than the learning work that the majority of us did as school kids. Yeah, it absolutely strips away the varnish of the history that I know that I learned in school. Mm. Um, I think we can also tell how compelling and meaningful it is uh, to the United States based on the backlash that it's received yeah. uh, and how public and um, just uh, vicious that backlash has been. Um, but we'll probably talk about that a little bit more later. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there anything specifically that's been compelling to you about the 1619 Project? Yeah, so much. I mean, I, I think in a general sense, one of the initial things that I was struck by with the 1619 Project is just how incredible it is as a body of work. Mm -hmm. Um, It is awe-inspiring and educational and compelling and thorough and full of really wonderful history and and stories. Um, And it is just so beautifully done. I mean, I was overwhelmed by it in a good way uh, the first time that I sat with it and read through it when it was first published. And Mm. it's been wonderful to revisit and and listen to the associated podcast for for this show. Yeah, I think um, it's remarkable. Uh, I really appreciate the way that they sort of infused literary work uh, in the magazine issue and also in the podcast. Yeah. Um, and I think the podcast is also an amazing way to bring the stories to life in a different way. Um, for example, hearing Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, tell some of the stories of her family and their experiences in Mississippi uh, or hearing the story of her uncle's uh, cancer diagnosis and, and that whole um, struggle. Um, and all of it highlighted elements of this narrative thread, I think, throughout the history of the United States. Uh, and then there's this episode where Wesley Morris talks about the history of American music and how much it is founded in blackness, yeah. um, theft from black people and this warped sense of, of uh, black people through minstrel shows, all while talking about Yacht Rock. Mm. Um, and that, that whole episode I found really compelling um, as well in a, in a different way. Um, and the history here is so wide ranging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there's just so much content in the 1619 project. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to me to acknowledge that it was 
difficult to get through it all. Um, mm. There's so much in it that I was just not taught in my middle school and high school history and social studies classes. You know, um, some of the history and stories in it, I had to learn on my own. Some of it I had to learn through my friends and family. Some of it I learned in college. Um, and, and there was even some history and events and stories in the project that I definitely learned for the first time when I read this back yeah. in 2019. Um, but I think any time I've been confronted with the kind of history that's in the 1619 Project, it's difficult, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the content really makes me experience a range of emotions. Yeah, uh, agreed. Um, it's not easy to come face-to-face with. I remember one of the episodes of the podcast where Nicole Hannah-Jones is interviewing um, somebody who's talking about the, the sort of um, history of the uh, plantation and mm-hmm. the plantation yeah, economy yeah. and um, and you know the way that he paused mm-hmm. when she asked him what do you feel about this mm-hmm. um, I think that rec- represents my reaction too she asked me she asked that question to him and as I was listening to it I was also like what do I feel and I mm-hmm. it's just so profound to think about that yeah um, And so, you know, as I said a little bit earlier, so much of our history is glossed over or deliberately distorted to make the U.S. look better than it is. Um, I think with this distortion of real history, it's harder to come to grips with it when you learn about it later in life. There's more dissonance when you hear about the real stories. Um, And I think that this there's this colloquial running thread or theme about our history in the United States. is that we're this flawed project of democracy and equality and we're always improving. Um, and you know, it's, it's almost like we're telling the story that we didn't know any better back then. Mm -hmm. And we were accidentally terrible and violent and racist. Um, and that, that just doesn't match up when you read the real history. Right. Um, this was all deliberate. All of that uh, was intentional. Uh, there was purpose and thought behind the violence and racism and and reasons for it. Right, that's absolutely true, and and such an important thing for us to reckon with. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one of the other things that I was moved by the most and what stuck with me is the notion of anti-black racism, uh, mm-hmm. because it's a common thread through much of the sixteen nineteen project. I think the the project really showcases how anti-black racism is really and truly part of the fabric of America and its history and even its present day. Um, you know, I, I the, the very first essay in the 1619 Project is by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is incredible, uh, and it's on democracy. Um, and in it, she lays the groundwork for talking about how 2019 was the 400th anniversary of the first slave ship arriving in America. Um, but she goes on to say so much more about democracy, but also about the notion of anti-black racism. And there were three quotes from the piece that really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one was, this belief that black people were not merely enslaved, but were a slave race, became the root of the endemic racism that we still cannot purge from this nation to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is, anti-black racism runs in the very DNA of this country as does the belief so well articulated by Lincoln that black people are the obstacle to this nation's unity. Mm -hmm. And the third is this violence and anti-black racism was meant to terrify and control black people, but perhaps just as important, it served as a psychological bomb for white supremacy. You would Mm -hmm. not treat human beings this way. The extremity of the violence was a symptom of the psychological mechanism necessary to absolve white Americans 
of their country's original sin. Um, and I, I, those three quotes in particular and sort of working together kind of say it all when it mm-hmm. comes to the notion and presence of anti-black racism in America. I mean, there's lots of examples of this throughout history and in what's presented in the 1619 Project, but also in our present day. I mean, there's so much connection to um, modern day lynchings and police brutality and killings and what the Movement for Black Lives stands for. And even what we've seen as recently as, you know, these past few months um, in terms of what emboldened white supremacy looks like and is capable of. And so uh, I was really moved by those three quotes in particular and the uh, heavy, and they weigh heavy on me as a black man because they certainly tell the story of our history, but also I think brilliantly describe what's happening in our world right now. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it makes me think about how anti-blackness has held us back from making progress everywhere, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I think about um, how that, the quote you said, talks about the balm um, of anti-blackness is sort of the balm for white supremacy, for Mm -hmm. for, um, there to be this sort of social caste um, of where people are supposed to fit and right. um, and how historically that's been used um, to prevent sort of progress across a wide spectrum of people. So yeah. I think about, um, you know, they tell the story back in the 40s of how Truman wanted universal health care um, and now how that was squashed by uh, campaigns from the American Medical Association, which we now sort of all consider as this great institution who we look to for research and mm-hmm. um, and things. Uh, and at the time, they didn't allow black doctors, and they seemingly wanted to keep the medical system exactly as it was um, for profit reasons. They didn't want it to affect their bottom line. Um, so it's kind of mind-boggling to consider how different our medical system would be today in the midst of a pandemic yeah uh if truman had been able to get universal health care through congress back in the 40s um and the american medical association which was an all-white organization at the Mm -hmm. time and seemingly connected to and wanting to uphold what white supremacy looked like at the time like what if they hadn't stood in the way um and had been sort of pro that and how many um people they affected um white and black by that those decisions that they made in the campaign that they they um, created yeah you know i i appreciate you bringing up healthcare here because um there was that great piece in the project by linda villarosa on the history of the various myths around black racial differences mm-hmm. um, and there was another piece about universal health care and i'm drawing a blank on the the author um but you know linda talks about um how even sort of more than 150 years removed from the end of slavery, that these sort of fallacies um, around black immunity to pain still show up in Mm -hmm. modern medical education and training and philosophy. Um, And I was struck by both of the pieces and how they really highlight issues around medicine and healthcare for black people that are present today, right? We see how black people and especially black women aren't believed by their doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, We see the loads of inequities 
in our healthcare system in this country and the impact that has on communities of color. Um, and so like with so much of the 1619 Project, these those two pieces really stood out to me because of how clearly the history is presented yeah. um, and how clear the connection is to the ways in which black people are treated in this country today and how anti-blackness um, touches all aspects of our lives, unfortunately. Yeah, it also, the healthcare thing also makes me think of um, a work called Medical Apartheid, mm-hmm. right? And and the experiments that were have been done on, on black people throughout the years that some are touched on in the 1619 project um it makes me think of the way that it shows up today too um right with serena um williams and her pregnancy and Mm -hmm. how um you know black women aren't listened to Mm -hmm. um by their doctors in in many ways um and seeing the ways that they they have to sort of uh navigate that differently than I do as a right. white man. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Um, so this, this history around healthcare, um, and its connections to anti-blackness and enslavement persists today yeah. in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, you know, something else I was struck by in the project was all of the photographs throughout it. Um, I've definitely seen some of the images in school textbooks and on the internet and in right. books, but um, there were definitely some photos that I hadn't seen before. Um, and I've I've said this before, but the 1619 Project is all about confronting our history, right? And so yeah. um, these images are a part of that history. And for me, seeing where the pictures are from is important too. Mm. Um, it's moving to see all of the pictures uh, of places that are sort of in our backyard here. We we both live in Maryland, mm-hmm. and there are lots of pictures of various slave auction locations and slave trading firms. And and one of the slave trading firms pictured is uh, not that far away from us here, over in Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah. And so all that to say, I was it was incredibly powerful and moving for me to look at and sit with the pictures and think about what happened at each of those places to, to black people and to enslaved people. Um, I just think it's important to recognize where all of this history we're reading about happened as part of our work and, and this work that we're, we're doing as well. Yeah. I think about, um, you know, in the, in the piece, so much of the history that we're reading about happened in places that are physically nearby, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, the Capitol is just down the road from us, Mm -hmm. uh, in Washington, DC. Um, and that was built by enslaved people. Um, you know, how just all of it touches all of this, particularly thinking about Maryland, um, and the underground railroad that ran through the Eastern shore of Maryland, Mm -hmm. um, or the part in, uh, Brian Stevenson's article, um, about capital punishment and, um, mass incarceration. Um, he included a piece about the Maryland le- legislature passing a law in 1664 uh, that said that black people shall serve in hard labor for life and that mm-hmm. this would be backed up by brutal torture. Uh, and then later on in 1729, that same legislature authorized punishments for enslaved people like cutting off hands and you know, much, much worse and even more violent than that. Yeah. Um, and just the way that this violence was sort of codified, mm-hmm. right? It it tells us going back to what I said earlier, it's this wasn't just like a we were accidentally violent, You're right? Right? Like this was purposeful. Um, I also think about 
uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger B. Taney, was from Maryland. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the um, Dred Scott case, decided that black people had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect. And what mm-hmm. that means, too, is us living in Maryland, um, you know, how do we how do we uh, acknowledge that history um, as well? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm literally just shaking my head this whole time as you talk mm-hmm. about it. Uh, you know, this history is right here in I'm from Maryland. Like this is my home state. And so right. it's a lot to to hear and, and learn about and contend with for sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the most powerful threads throughout the magazine and the podcast is this perspective um, that black people who have been fighting for their own freedoms um, have really been fighting for the very values that the U.S. was founded upon, mm-hmm. um, at least the ones they were stated yes. to be founded upon. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones ends her article by making a point that I think is one of the most enduring points that I took away and is backed up throughout these um, the works throughout the project uh, by saying we were told once by virtue of our bondage that we could never be American. But it was by virtue of our bondage that we became the most American of all. Mm. Yeah, very good. So as you all know, we always spend a little bit of time in the show talking about potential applications of the media on the table mm-hmm. and our discussions um, to our everyday lives. You know, I've never been a history buff and history was never my favorite subject in school, but we titled this episode Confronting Real History because we both really appreciate the spirit and goals of what the 1619 Project is all about mm-hmm. and, and what it could mean for us as a country to confront our collective history in terms of moving us towards social justice and liberation. Yeah, and history uh, happened to be one of my interests um, because I love figuring out why things are the way that they are. Mm. um, And history helped me to do that sometimes. Um, And I think the 1619 Project definitely does that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the ways, um, you know, I think about the ways that they talk about how present day management tactics of surveillance and reporting Mm -hmm. um, are based in the cotton plantation um, or how traffic in cities is potentially founded in anti-blackness and even the public transit project that's going on right in our backyard and it's under construction near us, uh, the purple line, um, which will run through the Maryland suburbs of DC when it's completed in however many years. Um, (laughs) And sort of hearing the subtly racist arguments against that um, throughout the communities. Yep um, around, around us. Um, so there are so many ways that this applies to our everyday lives, um, because the history tells the story of what's happening today in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, but what about you? Yeah, that's, I agree with that. Um, I think one application of what's in the 1619 project is the idea of the role that our government plays in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my goodness, this is more true now than ever. But specifically, I'm thinking about how laws and policies and programs and executive orders affect each and every one of us. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to perform our civic duty and vote, which I'm so happy to see that so many folks voted in this uh, most recent national election. Uh, But beyond that, uh, to also be loud and and stand firm in our convictions about what we want our politicians and our government to do. Um, we see that's ever so important now more than ever. Yeah. Um, and I think about 
you know, we're recording this the week after the coup attempt. Yeah. Um, and we have to keep holding public figures accountable for their actions and their promises. Uh, we can't keep holding back because we're quote unquote not ready yet. Yeah. Um, or that something is happening too fast. We have to um, press for progress in what justice means broadly for people um, as well. So, yeah, we can't we can't stop moving like that. We have to hold people accountable to that. For sure. Um, so what to propose as our homework this week? <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a lot here, right? Um, you know, I read the 1619 Project a couple of times when it first came out back in 2019. And I, of course, revisited it for the show today. And, uh, you know, for the first time, listened to the podcast because I hadn't listened to that um, before sort of preparing for uh, the our podcast here. But um, there are so many stories throughout the 1619 Project about real human beings. Yeah. And I think we should do a little work to amplify the stories of a couple of those folks uh, that are in the project because I think their stories deserve to be told over and over again. Yeah. Um, I think about uh, how this project used firsthand accounts of people who weren't always the so-called important historical figures right. of the day. Yep. Um which reminds me of People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn and a lot of works like that that are um, a little bit more sort of populist history um, of what regular everyday people went through. Um, so one of my ongoing pieces of homework is to think critically about what someone is saying and uh, think about who is benefiting from that mm. and who's benefiting from what they're saying. Um or uh who is it who gets to tell a story, who gets a microphone put in front of them um by uh, you know, uh, media or, um, the history books or whoever. Right. Um, you know, I think about our history classes are mostly based on hearing from prominent people rather than regular folks. Uh, and that's a warped story yeah. um, because if prominent people don't know what everyday people are going through, um, they can't tell that story. Um, it's from their perspective. So that's why it's easy to gloss over the history of anti-black violence. Mm -hmm. um, if we only ever hear from, for example, Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence um, while being waited on by his enslaved brother-in-law um, who was born into sexual violence against an enslaved black woman, um, then we actually don't get the full picture. We just believe the words that he wrote in the Declaration of Independence. Absolutely. Oh, that's such a good a good point and, and story and way to make your point, you know? Um, the other thing is, and I, I've thought about this because I, uh, was compelled by what Brian Stevenson said in his essay. Um, he said, and I'm quoting here, we must acknowledge the 400 years of injustice that haunts us. Mm -hmm. And so in thinking about that, I think the other thing we can all do, and certainly this would have to be when it's safe to do so given COVID and, and all that's happening there. But, um, I think visiting museums on American history and, and cultural centers that feature the stories of black people um, and indigenous people and other folks of color and, and folks of marginalized identities is really a worthwhile way to continue our shared education on this country's history. Um, and, and this is particularly important to me, um, you know, as a way to have real empathy for others and their lived experiences um, and to continue to push for real change. Yeah, um, I think finding ways to understand the real unvarnished stories about the history of this country and the broader world is super important. 
Um, I think another piece for me um, is sort of what my role is as a, a white guy mm-hmm. um, in this history and how I help um, my um, daughter. Yeah. She um, starts to learn about this history in a few years, how I help her um, understand um, the sort of real story um, of things. And um, she doesn't have to do this when she's 30 something. Right. Um, right. We can have earlier conversations and, and um, not have as much dissonance later on maybe. Um, so I think that's another piece, important piece of homework too, is like, how do we work with um, the people around us in our lives yeah. um, within our um, sort of spheres of influence yep. um, as well. Very good. Um, well, Aaron, you're up next week. Mm-hmm. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? So I'm not going to bring a specific thing or article or, or a piece of media, um, but a set of current events, mm-hmm. um, I guess. We're going to call this episode, It's Over and It's Not. Um, and it's going to be about the election, inauguration, mm-hmm. moving forward, uh, the insurrection or coup from last week. Um, so and to break the fourth wall a little bit um, and for a little bit of transparency, yep. uh, we are recording this on January 12th. Uh, so the inauguration is happening next week for us uh, in this moment. Um, but this episode that you're listening to and just listen to, uh, as you know, is released on the day of the inauguration. Right. Um, so we're planning a little bit ahead here, um, but I think there's going to be a lot to talk about when we do record that next episode. Absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it for sure. Um, we want to thank you for joining us and for mm-hmm. listening to Interdependent Study and you know what to do here. Please subscribe, leave a rating and review, share our podcast, and follow us. We are so incredibly grateful to and for all of you. Absolutely. Uh, and remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. Um, and we'll talk to you next week.